Father, thank you that you have spoken to us and that you have even in speaking to us as our Savior does in this passage, not only revealed truth to us, which you have, but you have demonstrated truth so that the very thing that Jesus called the disciples to do in prayer, he exemplified for them in his own prayer. And might that be instructive for us, encouraging to us as we hear our Savior pray? And might it embolden us to pray as he prayed? Would you guide our time? as we consider these most remarkable words from our most remarkable Savior, the King of the universe, the Lord of all men. In His name we pray. Amen. Relationships are hard work. Communication is hard work. Even when you make notes for yourself, it's hard work. Listening carefully thinking rightly, talking, and talking graciously, all hard work. There are times, I know, when we are tempted to say, it is so much hard work, it's just better that I be silent rather than attempt to say anything. Side note, it's not any better, though that is the temptation. Unfortunately, We sometimes consider the hard work of spiritual disciplines and come to a similar conclusion. The hard work is just not worth the effort. And we are wrong when we think that. The spiritual disciplines are hard work, but they are worthwhile. And of all the spiritual disciplines in which we engage ourselves, prayer is the one that I believe is probably the hardest work for most, if not all of us. We are too quick to give up with it and too prone to be too short with it. In Matthew chapter 6, in what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught the disciples and us how to pray by giving us a pattern for prayer. In John 17, near the end of his ministry, Jesus demonstrates how God prays and how he, Christ, prays for us. Have you ever wondered about the Trinity and how the members of the triune Godhead relate to one another. Have you ever wondered what conversation might be like between members within the triune Godhead? We know that Jesus speaks for us to the Father. He intercedes for us. He prays for us at the throne of God. Have you ever wondered... What does he say to the Father about me? This prayer answers all those questions. It is a revelation of the dynamic of the inner Trinitarian workings. And it is a revelation of the desires that God has for us. Because of 
the unique revelation of this prayer. It is the lengthiest recorded conversation between the Son and the Father in the Scriptures. John 17 is considered to be a particularly rich and stimulating passage. It is of this passage that Luther said, quote, This is truly, beyond measure, a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his Father, and pours them all out. It sounds so honest, so simple, yet it is so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom it. Luther's co-laborer and close friend Melanchthon wrote of this prayer, There is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or on earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God Himself. Believers have long been drawn to this passage. The reformer John Knox, as he was facing his final days, had this prayer to him read, read, had this prayer read to him every day before he died. James Montgomery Boyce, the eminent preacher from uh, uh, Philadelphia, Fifth Presbyterian in Philadelphia, preached 17 sermons on this one prayer. He was slightly outdone by the Puritan Thomas Manton, who was the chaplain to Oliver Cromwell, who preached 45 sermons on this, on this prayer. It has been called the High Priestly Prayer, the True Lord's Prayer, and a Holy of Holies. We come to this prayer this morning because one Sunday at the beginning of each year, I spend one message on the scriptures. We did that last week. And one sermon on prayer, which is what we do this morning. This morning, we learn from the lips of Jesus how to pray. And specifically, we learn how to pray for God's glory. This first section, verses 1 to 5, is the only part of this prayer that we're going to be looking at this morning. It is Christ's prayer for himself. And it is also a prayer that focuses on the glory of Christ and the glory of God. Simply stated, as we think about the glory of God, the glory of God is the revelation of his character and a revelation of his nature. It is what God is like. That's his glory. It's, it's the exposure. This is God in all of his fullness. And the more that is revealed about God the more we see His glory. So when Christ prays for God to be glorified through Him and for Him to receive the glory of God, He is merely praying for God to be more greatly revealed. And so the encouragement from this passage then is twofold. These are the truths about God that should bring us the greatest delights. And these are the truths about God that we should be seeking to reveal ourselves. Now, remember the context of this prayer. It's John chapter 17, and John chapter 17 follows John 16 and 15 and 14 and 13. And what's in John 13 to 16? It's what is called the upper room discourse. It is Jesus' teaching of the disciples in the upper room Thursday night before he is betrayed by Judas. And at the conclusion of his teaching... He offers this prayer. It's unclear exactly where he is. My supposition is, and I'm not 
I'm not going to die on this one. But my supposition is that he's still in the upper room with the disciples and they hear him pray this prayer. It is possible that he prays it on the way to the olive, uh, to uh, the Mount of Olives and the garden there. It's just not completely clear. What is clear is what he has prayed. This prayer serves as something of a benediction because it follows the upper room discourse. It's something of a tying of the bow, if you will, of all that he exposed to the disciples in that teaching. And it is also a preparation for them for everything that's going to come in the night to follow. And so in this prayer, we find Jesus praying for the twelve. That's in verses 6 through 19. And we find him praying for us. That starts in verse 20 and goes through the end of the chapter. I do not ask, he says in verse 20, on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And if you believe in Jesus Christ because of the testimony of the twelve, and if you believe in Jesus Christ, you do believe through their testimony, then we can rightly say Jesus had you in his mind as he prayed this prayer. And before he gets to praying for the twelve, though, and praying for us, he prays for himself. And that intercession that he makes for himself is particularly instructive because it demonstrates what's going on in his mind and heart as he is going to the cross. Judas is, as it were, in the shadows as he prays this prayer. He started the night with the twelve. Jesus dismissed him and he went to the Pharisees and made arrangements for how he could betray them. And Jesus was aware of that. The trials, the beatings, the cross are all looming in the hours ahead. It's close. What does Jesus pray for himself In that context, here's what he prays. Christ prays for and teaches us to pray for God's glory. As Jesus goes to the cross and as he prays for himself, he is captivated by one reality. It is the glory of God. What is most important for Christ in that moment is the exaltation of Christ. What is most essential to Christ is that the Father is revealed in all of His fullness and that Christ would delight in the reality of the Father. Even when He prayed for Himself, He was most concerned for the glory of the Father. And so His prayer in verses 1 to 5 is a demonstration to us of how He taught us to pray In Matthew chapter 6, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's the way our Savior himself prayed. So that's what he taught us to pray, and that's what he himself prayed. So how did Christ pray? And how did he pray for God's glory? He prayed for God's glory in five ways. Five ways manifestations of this one desire for God to be glorified in his life as he goes to the cross. Five ways that he asks for God to be glorified. The first is found in verse 1. Christ asked for God to be glorified. 
As we look at this prayer, I want you to notice at the beginning of verse 1, three contexts in which this prayer is made. Notice he says in the second phrase, lifting his eyes up to heaven. One of the contexts of prayer is the, 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 the posture which, in which Christ prays. This is a familiar posture for Jesus, lifting up his eyes to heaven. We find him praying in similar manner when he raises Lazarus from the dead. We find him praying in the same way when he blesses the five loaves and the two fish in Mark chapter 6. We find him praying in this way in Mark chapter 7 when he heals the deaf man. It's normal for him to raise his head and look, as it were, into heaven to make his prayer. It is in contrast to the prayer that he will pray shortly after this in the garden as the sin bearer. There he's on his face. There he is on the ground. There he is anticipating the coming of sin against him and on him, carrying that weight. There he is in submission. It is in contrast to the prayer that is offered by the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, where he is humbled again and low. It is in contrast to most of our prayers as well, isn't it? Typically I say, let's pray, and what do you do? Your head goes down in submission. Christ's head goes up in anticipation, looking to heaven. To lift his eyes to heaven is to recognize the authority of God in heaven. It is to look to the one to whom he seeks help for answering this prayer. But it also suggests a fellowship which he has with the Father who is in heaven. He is not prostrate in humility, but he comes to him as co-regent and asks for what he asks. Notice as well. Jesus spoke these things. I think when John says that Jesus spoke these things, he's not looking backward at chapters 13 to 16. I think he's anticipating the prayer to follow in verse 17. So or in chapter 17. So Jesus spoke these things, this prayer in chapter 17, lifting up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father. That's remarkable. And you go, well. That doesn't really sound remarkable. I mean, that's the way we pray all the time. You prayed that earlier this morning. And we did. That is Jesus' normal way to address God. We find that in Matthew chapter 6 as he instructed the disciples on how to pray. In fact, we find that six times in this, in this prayer. Six times in this prayer he addresses God as Father. Interestingly, verse 11, he addresses him as Holy Father. And verse 25, he addresses him as Righteous Father. He is the one who is set apart, unique, distinct, that is holy. And he is righteous. He always does what is righteous. He never does anything that is wrong. He only does that which accords with perfect righteousness. In fact, the only time that Jesus does not address the Father as Father, when He prays, is when He is on the cross. Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only time He prays and not call God the Father is when He is acting as the sin bearer of the world. There is a uniqueness to the fellowship between the Son 
and the Father. To address God as Father indicates His submission to Him. It indicates His dependence on Him. It indicates the hierarchy of the Trinitarian relationship. There is one who is Father and there is another person in this triune Godhead who is the Son and they operate with different personalities and different functions within that Godhead and the Son submits to and follows the Father. It also denotes, and we know this from John chapter 5 because the Pharisees caught on to this, that when he calls, them the, when he calls him Father, he is... He is appealing to something akin to equality with him. And that was an area in which the Pharisees protested against Christ. And for Christ to call him the father means that he has unique access, unique intimacy, unique fellowship that is fitting only of the father and son in the Trinitarian relationship. And so when he prays in this way, there is... Tremendously unique access that is on his mind. And what does he pray? He states a fact, first of all, Father, this is the third context in which he prays, the hour has come. We've already alluded to the cross, but now Jesus is being specific. As he comes to this prayer, he is coming talking about the hour the thing that has been anticipated. When John uses this phrase, hour, and he uses this phrase repeatedly in this gospel, I think something akin to a dozen times, it always refers to the coming work of Christ on the cross. For Jesus to say the hour has come, he is saying the eternal plan... The promise that you made to me in eternity past about a redeemed people and how they would be redeemed and how they would eventually come into glory and be with us in glory and that they would be there for all of eternity to worship me and to delight in our fellowship. That hour of redemption is here. It's no longer theoretical. It is a reality. As one commentator says, the unfolding drama of redemptive history has reached its apex. For Christ to mention the hour in this moment is to recognize that this prayer is being given with a cross at the forefront of his mind. Here is God incarnate, God contemplating the cross and thinking about The absorbing of God's infinite wrath as the sin bearer. In that moment, as he's thinking about the hour and the cross and the wrath. And holy God bearing sin. What will he pray? This prayer is motivated by the quickly arriving cross. What does he pray for himself? Under the shadow of the cross. One commentator has said. In this initial five verses. There's really only one request. That God make. That Christ makes for himself. And it is in the phrase that follows. Verse, seven, verse one of chapter 17. Glorify your son. Glorify your son. The word glorify means to honor. Means to praise. It means. To find delight in. It also means to give 
or to reveal a true estimation of the reality of another. It's to show the weightiness, the importance of another. So when Christ prays this, glorify your son, it means something like this. While I'm going to experience the most humbling, despised kind of death and absorb your wrath, will you also demonstrate my true nature in the resurrection and ascension and my return to glory? Will you accept my sacrifice on the cross and will you reveal through my sacrifice on the cross the full extent of the wonder of the gift of salvation and my position in this world? And will you accept me and take me back into glory? For Christ to pray for his glory is to pray for his resurrection. It is to pray for his vindication. It is, says D.A. Carson, a petition to reverse the self-emptying entailed in his incarnation and to restore him to the splendor that he shared with the Father before the world began. The cross and Jesus' ascension and exaltation are thus inseparable. The hideous profanity of Golgotha means nothing less than the Son's glorification. You want to see the Son in all of his glory? Look at the cross. The greatest place of humility from the standpoint of the world, the greatest place of the exhibition of God's and Christ's glory in the Godhead's estimation. But I want you to notice something else. He doesn't just pray, glorify your son. But he has a reason for asking for God to be glorified. And he gives that in the next phrase. Glorify your son. Why? That the son may glorify you. Now here's something interesting. Since Christ is God, and He is the eternal Son to the eternal Father, when He prays, glorify your Son, He is in actuality, just with that first phrase, glorify your Son, praying for the entire Godhead to be glorified. What He wants when He says pray for... What he wants when he says, glorify your son, is for the glory of God. So it's a God-glorifying, righteous, God-honoring kind of prayer. But even more than that, he says, it's not just that I want glory for myself. I want glory for the Godhead. I want glory for the Father. I want people's hearts to be turned to the Father. I want people to delight in the Father. I want people to be satisfied in the Father. And isn't that just like Jesus? Never pointing to himself as an end, but always pointing to the Father. Throughout his ministry, he always wants the Godhead to be glorified and the Father to be glorified. Just Turn back a few pages. John chapter 12. This is about five days earlier, six days earlier. This triumphal entry. John chapter 12. Verse 27 and then verse 28. And now my soul has become troubled. But what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. That is the hour of the crucifixion. Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. 
What's Jesus saying? I'm going to the cross so that the name of the Father gets glorified. I'm interested not in self-glorification. I'm interested in God glorification, Father glorification. In the upper room with the disciples, he says something similar. Chapter 13, verse 31. Therefore, when he, Judas, had gone out from the twelve, Jesus said, verse 31, John 13, Now is the Son of Man glorified and... God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, then God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. So Jesus cannot think about the glory of himself being exhibited at the cross without thinking about the glory of the Father. It's always about the Father. He's always pointing to the Father. This is no self-serving prayer. It is a prayer that terminates, friends, where all prayers should terminate. On the glory of God. So that God is honored. And God is revealed. In all that is done and said. So the son. Is exemplifying for us. Exactly. What he has called us to do. When he taught us how to pray. He taught us to pray. Father. Who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Your name is holy. And here. As he. Himself prays. He is pointing first of all and most of all to the nature and character of God and his glory. I want you to notice a second way that he prays for God's glory, and that is Christ submitted to the glory of God's authority. He submitted to the glory of God's authority. Now, I want you to think for just a moment about the character of Christ. And there's. An understated sentence. I think for a moment. About the character of Christ. That who the one who is infinite. We think about for just a moment. Right. How do you capture that? So let me just draw tease out a couple things about Christ's character. He is the eternally existent God. He is self-existent, uncreated, the creator and sustainer of all things. If anything exists, he made it. If anything continues, he holds it in its place. He has revealed all truth and he knows all things. He is present in heaven. He is seated on the throne of God, co-regent with the Father and also present everywhere at all times. He can do all things that are consistent with his nature. There is nothing that exists that doesn't belong to him and nothing that can act against his will. And this one, who Paul says in Colossians 1, uh, says of him who is before all things and in him all things hold together, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. That one submits himself to the authority of the Father. Stop. He prays what he prays, submissively asking in verse 1 for God's glory. He prays that because God, the Father, gave him authority. Even as you, verse 2, gave him authority. That statement does not diminish Christ's deity, 
It is not to say that Christ is less than God, and if Christ really was God, then he would have authority on his own like God has authority on his own. But it, it does give us a glimpse into the inner workings of the Trinity and the Godhead. There is co-equality between all members of the Trinity. There is co-equality in nature, in power, in wisdom, in knowledge, in every attribute of the Godhead. There is co-equality in nature and essence. And yet there is distinction as to personality and function. That is, the Father and the Son are different people within the Godhead and they function differently. And we see a glimpse of that here. The Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, and the Father grants to the Son to have authority. And so even while the Son has authority as the eternal Son of God, He also has authority because it has been granted to Him. And it has been granted to Him, He says, over all flesh. What does he mean by that? He means that there is no person every, anywhere that is not under Christ's authority. And that is granted to him. That authority over all men everywhere, over all time, has been granted to him by the Father. Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2 rather. We understand that the Father gives the Son the right to rule on the earth. John chapter 5. The Father gives the Son the right to judge. John chapter 8, the Father gives the Son the right to resurrect Himself from the dead. And Jesus joyfully submits to that authority of the Father. John MacArthur has written, Jesus' prayer highlights His absolute confidence in and submission to the perfect will of God. Watch this. Even though He knew perfectly what it would cost Him. Now, what comes with that authority is the ability to give eternal life. That's in the last clause of verse 2. But the ability to give eternal life comes through his death. That's the hour. That's the cost. That's his submission. So the Father has given him authority. And he's given him a particular authority, he says here, to give eternal life. The life that comes by faith for those who will believe in Him. And don't miss this. That when Christ dies and Christ has the authority of eternal life and some come to believe in Him and He grants that eternal life to them, the end of that is the glory of God. It is beyond words to say we are astoundingly blessed by our salvation. I prayed this morning something like this as I was preparing for worship. Father, I'm coming to you again as a weak, clay, cracked, Broken vessel. And you saved me. That ought to just 
that just ought to overwhelm us. But the end of it is not just our own personal salvation and how astounding it is that the Father would save us. The astounding part is that it reveals just how great He is. Our salvation is ultimately about Him and what He is like and how gracious He is. And that's why Christ submitted to the glory of God's authority. There's a third manner in which He sought God's glory in this prayer and it is that Christ sought God's glory in giving eternal life. So, let me ask you a question. Not a trick question. What's eternal life? Obviously, Terry, it's eternal. It's a really long time. Like unending time. Like it doesn't stop. Like it goes beyond anything we can fathom. Because the only thing we know is the stoppage of time. And limited time. And this is unlimited time. Extended time. Infinitely. Oh, but it's so much more than that. What's eternal life? Well, let Jesus explain it to us. Verse 3. And this is eternal life. You want to know what eternal life is? He tells us. This is eternal life. That they may know you. It's not just we get unending time. It's that we get unending knowledge. And exposure to and intimacy with and fellowship with God the Father. To know God is more than just to know about Him or to know a way to Him. It is our life itself. I think that's part of why Jesus says what he says to the disciples in chapter 15, that earlier that night, verse 9. Just as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And these things, verse 11, John 15, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I want you to know what it is like to be in this inner Trinitarian fellowship coming in with us so that now you will know joy. Because nothing you have on earth can compare with the joy of knowing Him and being in fellowship with Him. And notice this. This is eternal life. He doesn't say this will be eternal life. That they may know you. This is eternal life. That is, this is the life that they have now. If they already believe in you and already are in fellowship with you and you have granted to them eternal life, that eternal life has already started. And that knowledge of Him has already started. And that fellowship with Him has started. And that access to Him has started. And that intimacy with Him has started. And while we will one day see Him face to face, everything that we will know in fullness there has already started here. In these clay, cracked, broken vessels. Friends, there's grace. There is the glory of the Father. 
why do, why do we love salvation? Why do we love the gospel? Why do we, why do we love investing as we're going to invest in children at Oakwood School starting a week from tomorrow and teaching them the gospel? I mean, that's an inconvenience to schedule, isn't it? I mean, it kind of turns your afternoon upside down and, and, you know, dealing with kids and scattered thoughts and disconnected ideas and runny noses and, hey, mister, hey, mister, hey, mister, hey, mister. You got snacks, you got snacks, you got snacks. No, you got snacks now, now, dude, now, now, snacks, now. I mean, who wants that? Because we believe in the value of knowing God. We don't just want children and adults and counselees and disciples and our next door neighbors and our coworkers to have eternal life. We want them to have something now. We want them to have fellowship with God now, intimacy now, fellowship now. Many of you are married. Or some of you have been married. Your spouses have gone on. Preceded you in death. We don't get married. So that we can say. You know there's coming a day when I'm not going to be in such good shape anymore. I used to be in good shape. You know I used to be 22. I used to be stronger. Used to be more vibrant. Used to be healthier. Now I've got a pacemaker. Now I've got, you know, I've got this electric thing in my heart that keeps it going, which is just kind of weird. And all kinds of other things, aches and pains and ailments. You know, last night rolling around in bed, it's like, oh, my back hurts that position. Oh, my back hurts in that position, right? And I don't go to Ray Jean and say, hey, you know, I married you 35 years ago for today so that you can start taking care of this stuff for me. I mean, that is an end game part of it, right? We get married so that we can love another, so that when we get old, we can care for one another. That's part of love. Why do we get married? Oh, in fellowship. Now. I want intimacy. Now. I want connectedness. Now. I want unity. Now. And that's why we believe the gospel, so that we can have fellowship and know God. Now. And the gift of God is eternal life so that you would enjoy Him today. Christ sought God's glory in giving eternal life and that life starts now. There's a fourth way in which Christ prays for God's glory and that is, verse 4, Christ exhibited God's glory in His work Christ's primary prayer request is for the restoration of His glory, right? That's verse 1. Glorify your Son. Would you accept my work on the cross? Would you raise me from the dead? Would you keep my self-existent power within me so that I raise myself from the dead? Would you accept me into glory? Would you accept me at your right hand where I can serve as co-regent with you in eternity? That's his prayer. Would you glorify me and restore my glory that I set aside in coming to earth? But it wasn't just that Christ was glorified on the cross. Notice verse 4. 
Jesus says, I glorified you on the earth. In other words, all of Christ's earthly life was a manifestation and a revelation of the glory of God. It didn't begin this exaltation of God's glory at the cross. It began at the incarnation. John draws attention to that in chapter 1. The Word became flesh. The Word dwelt among us and we saw His glory. What was His glory like? It was glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw His glory and we knew it's not about Him, it's about the Father. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. The Son has revealed. The Son has exposed. The Son has set on display God's glory. And He did that all through His earthly ministry. Now He says, verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished, I finished, it's completed, the work which you have given me to do. What did, what did the Father send Him to do? He sent him to fulfill the law. Matthew 5. Check. Done. He sent him to save sinners. John chapter 3. Done. He sent him to testify for the Father. John chapter 5. Done. He not only went, was sent to save sinners, but he actually considers that work already completed. We're in John 17. Just flip up to the end of chapter 16, verse 33. An hour is coming. Again, the hour of crucifixion has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home. So I'm going to be crucified. You're going to be scattered. You're going to be dispersed. And to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. I've said you're being scattered and I want that to bring you peace. You think about that and you think he's just promised them persecution and then he connects peace to persecution. That's antithetical. On what basis can he say that? In the world you have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. You're going to have persecution But take courage. Why? I have overcome the world. It's done. Now, there's this little thing about the cross that is still coming to seal the deal. But I've already defeated Satan. I've already defeated sin. I've already demonstrated perfect righteousness. I have fulfilled Christ, the Father's calling for me. It's finished. And when the work is finished... What's the result? Verse 4. I glorified you. God is glorified. He did what the Father called Him to do. And the Father's glorified. One last way that He prays for God's glory. Christ asked for restoration to God's glory in heaven. So now in verse 5, He says again, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. It's the same prayer that he prays in verse 1. It's the same request. It's the same it's the same fixation 
on the one great reality of life, that God be glorified in all things. He wants restoration after the wrath. He wants vindication as the eternal God-man. And specifically, he wants to be restored to the Father. Notice that, verse 5. Glorify me together with yourself. In other words, reveal me to be who I am along with your own self-revelation. And and specifically, grant to me the kind of glory that I had with you before the world was. So going back before creation, in eternity past, that fellowship that we had as the triune God in full satisfaction with one another, would you restore that to me? We understand that when Jesus Christ came to earth, while He gave up His position in heaven, He did not give up His deity He gave up privileges that related to his position in heaven. Philippians chapter 2 says he gave up all of the rights that he had in heaven in order to take on flesh and manhood, adding to his deity fleshliness and manhoodness. This request is Jesus' desire for the restoration of that previous glory. Not only for resurrection from the dead, but ascension to heaven and being placed at the right hand of the Father. Listen to what the psalmist says, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's Christ's prayer. Can I come sit beside you? As your co-equal and co-regent. And rule the world with you. Did the Father answer that prayer? Hebrews 1. And he, Christ, is the radiance of his glory. And the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Father answered, took him to heaven and seated him at his right hand. God answered. I hope you hear in this prayer the God-centeredness of Christ. He is saturated with and in pursuit of the glory of God. There is nothing greater in Christ's mind than the pursuit of God's glory, even when that glory meant the cross and bearing sin and bearing death and bearing wrath as infinite God. Even though he had to suffer in order to accomplish the greatest demonstration of God's glory. Because he wanted the Father to be glorified. He endured it joyfully. All of it. And brothers and sisters, here's a lesson for us. Too often we look at our circumstances and we say, I want out. This is wrong. It's unfair. It's not right. I want out. 
And we try and find a way to wiggle out of the circumstances or change the circumstances or manipulate the circumstances. And Christ said, I'll take anything so long as the Father is glorified. That ought to be our objective. I'll take it all if the Father will be glorified. The one who went to the cross prayed for the glory of Christ, for the glory of God, desired the glory of God, pursued the glory of God, even when it meant the cross. The title of this sermon is Pray for God's Glory. I had two ideas in mind with that title. Pray in such a way that God's glory is demonstrated. So that God's glory is revealed through your prayers. Pray, in a sense, for the exhibition of God's glory so that His nature, His character are revealed even as Christ revealed His authority and His eternality and His salvation in this prayer. God is honored by prayers with a high view of God. God is honored by prayers that are saturated with a pursuit of the revelation of God. And I meant this title in a second way as well. Pray with delight in God. To glorify God means that we reveal His character, but we don't reveal it begrudgingly. We reveal it joyfully. We're saturated with Him, invigorated by Him, intoxicated by Him, We delight in Him and pray with adoration and delight in Him. We go to Him because we love Him. It's appropriate and it's commanded to pray, to ask God for help. But we also are to delight in the one to whom we go for help. As we conclude this morning, the only thing I know to do is to pray. Would you bow with me as we consummate this message? Our Father, we come to you as dependent, needy, weak people. And we come to you seeking to emulate not only the commandment of our Savior for how to pray, but we come to you seeking to pray the way he himself prayed. So, Father, we, we first of all praise you for the glory of God and the glory of Christ and who you are in your nature. The scriptures tell us that we see your glory in creation, and certainly we do. The wonder of sunsets and sunrises and mountains and beaches and oceans and grandiose trees. Powerful winds. And we see the handiwork of the God who made it all. But Father, most supremely, we see your glory in Christ Jesus. When he came to earth, he not only fulfilled your law, but he also revealed and explained to you. When he was seen, you were understood. You have revealed yourself in creation and in your word, but supremely you are revealed in Christ. We saw him and heard him and touched him. 
And we were seeing and hearing and touching you. The incomprehensible was made comprehensible through Christ and supremely through his death. In his hour of suffering, we saw your righteousness, your wisdom, your wrath, your authority, and your grace. We praise you, Father, also for the glory of God in Christ's authority. We thank you that as the eternal God, he, Christ, has authority in himself, authority to be self-existent and uncreated, authority to create and sustain all things, authority to take on manhood and to raise himself from the dead. He bows the knee to no one, and all others bow the knee to him and to you. And we praise you that you also have given him that authority over all people everywhere. We thank you for that authority is derived from your plan and your promise of salvation that you made to him in all of eternity. And thank you that he submitted to that authority to accomplish eternal life. We praise you as well for the glory of God and salvation and eternal life. It is glorious enough for to us that you have saved sinners, to say that you have saved enemies, that you have saved, saved haters of you, and you have adopted them. Yet your glory is also revealed in greater degree when we see that the life you gave us is to know you. We know you, the one and only true God, the one who is above all things, the one who is unapproachable, the one who cannot dwell with wickedness. We know that one, you. And we not only know you, but we also know Jesus Christ, the one whom you sent that we might know you. We praise you also for the glory of God and the work of Christ. We praise you for all that Christ accomplished on this earth. Not only his salvation for us, but all the works that he did and all the truth that he revealed, for they were revelations of your glory. He came to earth to fulfill your obedience to you, and he has fully accomplished all that you gave him to do. We praise you lastly for the glory of God and the exaltation of Christ. Christ asked for a restoration of the glory that he set aside so that he might serve us and reveal you to us. And we know that you have given him what he asked because even now he is at your right hand, seated with you, ruling over all things as sovereign Lord. All things are under his feet, including us. And for us, there is no safer and more graced place to be than under his feet. Thank you, Father, for a glorious Savior who is a glorious Son to you and who revealed your glory. Might we always grow in the desire of delighting in your glory, the glory that your Son so perfectly demonstrated. In his name we pray. Amen.